Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. So I ended up leaving little written notes um, tied up in a little bow for my mom. It was the first time he signed his own consent form. Kids felt confident and teens felt confident that this was something that they knew about themselves. Two weeks ago, we all got to know more about the lives of three young trans boys between the ages of 9 and 11. We learned how they chose their names, about their worries before telling their parents and friends they are trans, about how, for the most part, being trans has had little impact on their busy young lives as grade and middle schoolers. But this is a worrying time for them and their families. The boys talked about what it feels like to know that Missouri lawmakers are trying to pass bills targeted at kids just like them. I don't think they know anything about what it's like to be trans. Let's say if you're going to pass a bill or say yes or something, then actually think about what you're doing. What is it going to be like if you were trans or that person, and how is it going to harm them? Those were the words of a nine-year-old trans boy who spoke to St. Louis on the air last month. Now, at his age, he and his friends are doing what's known as social transition, which involves changing their names, wearing boy clothes, and otherwise living as boys. It takes a lot of care and time and planning. All three told me they're happier as boys, but they're approaching an age when, together with their families and doctors, they will have more and different decisions to make about their bodies, about things like hormones, and perhaps in the future, surgery. Those decisions could soon be restricted or removed altogether under bills now pending in the Missouri legislature. It's not the first time these sorts of laws have been proposed, but the situation is different this year. To understand what gender-affirming care is and why it's under unique pressure in Missouri in 2023, our producer Danny Wisentowski sat down with St. Louis Public Radio health reporter Sarah Fenton. Gender-affirming care can mean a lot of things, depending on a person's age, their individual transition goals, and even their social situation. Sarah, you've been reporting on this subject for the last few weeks, so based on what you've learned, Give us some grounding here first. What are we talking about when we use this term gender-affirming care? So gender-affirming care, um, some people call it gender-affirmative care. It's an umbrella term for treatment and behaviors that affirm someone's gender that they identify with. And so when we think about trans health care, we rightfully think about hormones, injections, and top and bottom surgery. But there are other types of gender-affirming care, too. And those include everything from changing your name or pronouns to wearing different clothing, or working with a therapist to help you understand your concept of yourself and your gender. Uh, Because people all have different medical histories and concepts of their gender, it looks different to everybody. Yeah, and that last process you just talked about, social transition, that's one part of gender-affirming care. But there's the, the other part, the more complicated medical issues. That goes beyond just choosing a name, getting a haircut. Right, and it's, like I said, different for every person because every person's relationship 
with their gender is different. And so for one person, it might look like a full, what we call a medical transition with hormones or surgery, and someone might just want a mastectomy to remove their breasts. Um, or sometimes people just want a new name or clothes, and that's enough um, for someone to feel comfortable with their gender. And so all of those fall under the umbrella of gender-affirming care. Now, what, typically, what does it take for a person to get this kind of care? Gender-affirming care is what doctors call patient-centered, which means it's individualized to each patient. Um, the patients I talked to said it was quite a long process to receive medical care. Um, uh, and so, you know, obviously, whether somebody can change their pronouns that they use or their clothes that they wear depends a lot on, and obviously, if they're young, uh, their situation with their family or how accepting their community is. The patients I talked to said it was quite a lengthy process um, from the time when they came out, usually early in their teens or even when they were adolescents. Um, to when they actually started receiving something like hormones, usually it takes at least a year. So there are a lot of these concepts, a lot of decisions to make. And to kind of talk about the ways that these decisions are made, I'd like to bring in two more voices to our conversation. And so joining us in studio now is Susan Halla. Uh, and also with us on the line is her 22-year-old son, Joey Borelli. Uh, Joey, Susan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Now, Joey, you're a college student. You're studying Spanish and political science. Um, and you began your transition uh, as a boy when you were just a teenager. How did you kind of make your own voice heard when you needed to tell someone that you were a boy? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I, I knew that I was trans, definitely, at 15. So I had a few friends that I told first and was really consulting with other trans people and being like, you know, I think that this is what's going on with me. Does it align with your experiences? You know, can you help me, guide me? I came out to my mom and my, my dad at 16. So I ended up leaving little written notes um, tied up in a little bow for my mom. Uh, and then my, after that, I like, after telling my mom, I kind of ripped off the bandit and just like went up and told my dad and it was just great. I, I tell the story a lot is that um, he left me a note on the kitchen table after he thought I was asleep. And um, of course, he should have known that I don't go to bed early. I'm a night owl. And, and I found it. And I just went to his room. And we just started to hug. Um, and then we started to cry. And I had to stop. And I had to tell him that I will love him no matter what name we use, what pronouns we use. He's always the same kid to me. It doesn't matter what those things are. Um, but I cried because of what society was going to do to him because I knew that was going to happen. But man, I was on board. I had suspicions already that he might be trans. And the next day I was on the phone with his um, pediatrician's office, with uh, Children's Hospital, and just figuring out my way of, you know, what's the first thing I need to do. Mm -hmm. and, and so, Joey, you know, hearing hearing your mom describe that, I mean, Tell us a bit kind of how did you progress from that point? I mean, you got through that big reveal of telling them. What were the next steps that you had to tackle? Yeah, I am just so lucky to have my mom. And all my family has been so supportive and so wonderful and sweet. So I think my next steps from there were starting to figure out when to tell uh, everyone else. And then obviously I began specific gender therapy with Washington University, Children's Hospital, prior to the establishment 
the official establishment of the transgender center. So I was going through gender therapy for a pretty long time. I was thinking about stuff like what name I wanted to use. Um, when I wanted, again, when I wanted to come out to the rest of my family and what is the safest way to do that. We're talking about gender-affirming care in Missouri and how its future could be restricted. And we're talking about this with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Sarah Fenton, along with parent Susan Halla and her son, Joey Borelli. Uh, Sarah, I, I wanted to ask, you know, Joey just described, you know, going through this, the, you know, telling his family and parents, then going to this clinic and spending really months um, just trying to figure out where to go from there. Is, is that typical, kind of this long, drawn-out process? For some people, they're very sure. And for other people, they want to take their time a little more. Um, I've talked to different patients, and, um, you know, one person said I knew, you know, completely when I was a preteen. And then another person said I wanted to go a little bit more slowly because I know that these are big steps. Um, so for every person, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's different. But for um, when it comes to actually receiving the care, as anybody who's tried to make like a therapist appointment, even right. if you're not trans, um, it takes a really long time. And so by the time somebody can, you know, usually get an appointment, gets a referral, um, act actually ends up talking to doctors or an endocrinologist or um, any other kind of treatment provider, it's usually been a long time. Joey, you know, your your mom just mentioned that, you know, there was this, you know, she had this reaction that she was so happy that you had told her about this, but this worry knowing of, of how the world could treat you. I'm wondering, you know, did you, did you worry that she wouldn't believe you? I think that something that is very difficult for all LGBT people and particularly trans people is at some point they all have to question whether the people that are closest to them actually love them unconditionally. So that is really difficult pre-coming out. Of course, that is, you know, all that worry is clear from my head. There was definitely, of course, worries about the world that I was living in, particularly living in Missouri. Susan, you know, hearing Joey talk about, about these things, certainly that, that is a tough thing to figure out when you're, you know, 15 and you're trying to figure out how your body is going to change. What kind of conversations were you trying to have with him at that, at that time, making these big decisions you know, for your child's benefit, but also really listening to him um, and, and him telling you things that you maybe weren't expecting. Right. Well, I think you hit the nail, nail on the head about saying things that you weren't necessarily expecting. And I, I think that's true. But you also, I think any parent of any child of any age listens to what their child needs. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm coddling my child. That doesn't mean my child is running my household. But I have to listen to what he needs because I'm not living in his body. Um, and I think it's important to note from a parent's perspective, uh, you know, anyone seeking any kind of medical care, it is a practice, right? Uh, nobody walks into the transgender clinic with their child and doesn't sit down and have long conversations with the medical team. Um, there's nobody that is going through care without the uh, acceptance of their parent, parent under the age of 18, and we were no different uh, from that standpoint. I mean, uh, they would have sat down and talked to us as long as we needed. We need to take a quick break. 
When we return, we'll continue our conversation about gender-affirming care with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Sarah Fenton, as well as Susan Halla and her son, Joey. Halla also serves as the board president of the nonprofit Transparent, which advocates for parents and families of trans kids. Stay tuned. Up next, we'll discuss how accusations against a St. Louis gender care clinic has sparked an effort by Republican officials to ban gender-affirming care in Missouri. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're talking today about gender-affirming care and what it means to grow up trans in Missouri. As in many states, gender-affirming care here has come under fire from Republican lawmakers and public officials. Let's return to our conversation with St. Louis on the Air producer Danny Wisentowski and St. Louis Public Radio reporter Sarah Fenton. They are joined by parent Susan Halla, who serves as the board president of the nonprofit Transparent. Her son Joey also joined us. Before the break, they were discussing how things changed for Joey, who began transitioning in high school once he turned 18. Joey, when you turned 18, a lot more treatment options opened up to you, and you were seeing physicians at a gender clinic affiliated with Washington University. What changed when you started going to that clinic? I mean, I had the opportunity to pursue surgery where the surgeons would not operate under excuse me, would not operate on anyone under 18 at the time. Other than that, my care didn't really change. I had started hormones at 17 or five days before my 17th birthday, to be really specific, and was continuing therapy. So those two things stayed steady. And Susan, to this point, you know, Joey becomes an adult, but you've been involved in this medical care so intimately for so long, and some of this care has already started. What, what did change once surgery kind of came on the table? I think the biggest thing that changes, but it changes for every parent when your child turns 18, is that you no longer have the right to necessarily be in the room with your child. You do not sign off on their care. In fact, when we took Joey for his surgery, uh, it was the first time he signed his own consent form. So Mm -hmm. it was actually a pretty momentous occasion. Um, But that is no different from any other parent. Now, Joey, uh, I have been in rooms with him before, um, but I ask him, is it okay for me to be here? I would just add, of course, we're still really close. And I would say she still comes with me to medical appointments. I still, I love my mom, you know? Um, So she continued to be a part of the journey. Susan, we're, we're going to talk about the Washington University Clinic um, in, in a bit of detail here, but I'm curious because you were going through this process at a time when that clinic did not exist. What was your impression of that clinic? Tell us a bit about you know how they presented the options to you and, and what they told you. Well, it was really interesting. We only had really one visit there before they formed the actual clinic. Um, and that first visit was our first visit with an endocrinologist. And um, it was very much what Sarah is saying is that it's it's no walk in the park to get this done. And it's that that endocrinologist said, well, Joey, 
I don't think you're ready yet. And these are the five things or whatever that I want you to do. One of them was to be out at school with everyone. One of them was to be out with his entire family, extended family. And I don't remember what the other things were. But um, after that, um, our our visits became a little bit more, um, I guess, standard. It was the discussions about what kind of medical intervention that we as a family wanted to pursue. Um, and then we went from there. Now that you know that that description is interesting and is going to be relevant to what we're talking about you know in just now, which is this controversy that has settled over the Washington University Clinic and has really affected the entire legislative um, session this year and the bills and laws that are targeting gender affirming care of the kind that you and Joey have sought out. And what happened is that on February 9th, a former case manager at that clinic named Jamie Reed published a first person essay. And in that essay, she talked about her work as an intake person at the clinic. Um, And she had written that hundreds of patients were receiving care there, but that she had grown convinced that the clinic is actually pushing these minors and these families into things like hormones and surgery. She claimed that some young patients were being prescribed testosterone after, quote, a single visit to the endocrinologist, and that others were referred to surgery, again, as minors. And that's something that the clinic says just isn't happening. In that essay, she also claimed that the center was downplaying the negative consequences of gender-affirming care. And at the end of that, she called for a moratorium, not just on the, for the Washington University Clinic, but for all minors who are seeking this kind of care, writing, I believe that to ensure the safety of American children, we need a moratorium on hormonal and surgical treatment of young people. Sarah, so give us some, some of the basics here. Zoom us out a bit. What is the Washington University Transgender Center? How long has it been there and what does it do? It is a clinic at St. Louis Children's Hospital that's affiliated with Washington University. It opened in 2017 and was a partnership between um, adolescent health professionals and an endocrinologist who saw that there was sort of a black hole for this kind of care in the region and also that more people were looking to seek this care um, as minors. And so it's it's a clinic just for young transgender people, um, and it subscribes to this gender-affirming care model that I uh, that I described before, um, and it's been in the news because of that op-ed from Jamie Reed, and um, it's been kind of under fire. Right now, it's being investigated by our state's attorney general, Andrew Bailey, um, who is uh, looking into these allegations that were made in this op-ed. Um, Also, Washington University itself says it's reviewing the procedures at the clinic to make sure that they're in line with the standards of care that they have there, both uh, medically and professionally. And this piece really was explosive in in putting a spotlight on the clinic in a way that has really put it on the defensive. And in that essay, Jamie Reed describes, um, for my sense, about six distinct cases um, although she also says that the clinic is seeing hundreds of, of kids every year. Um, but she did you know, put details in there, and she she clearly was, you know, believes that there was something going wrong. Susan, you know, Jamie Reed's claims, they're about a clinic that you know well. What was your reaction to those accusations? All of this is part of a very well-orchestrated uh, hit on transgender youth that is happening across the United States. It isn't just Missouri. In fact, I've been going to the Capitol for four years uh, trying to um, fight these bills. Uh, 
And it was really suspiciously timed, in my opinion, that when uh, Jamie Reed's article came out. I knew Jamie Reed. I have worked with her on a professional level before. Um, I was shocked. I still don't know where it has come from. We're talking about gender-affirming care in Missouri and how its future could be restricted and the controversy around the Washington University Gender Clinic. We're talking today with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Sarah Fenton and along with parent Susan Halla and her son Joey Borelli. Joey, this essay it described things that were happening to a number of kids who in general, were in a similar position that you were. We're exploring uh, their gender identities. We're trying to talk to physicians. We're getting therapy. We're, what did you feel reading that that essay and the way and the conclusions that really that she was drawing? Yeah, I think that there are very few words to describe the feeling of reading that essay. It makes you feel sick. It makes me feel like I want to throw up. It makes me feel very scared. I would say that when reading it, I'm kind of reeling thinking not a single one of these things is true. Would you talk to one trans person? You know, I, it's just, it's baffling. It leaves me reeling, but it also makes me want to throw up because of the power that it has. Um, I think that is my conclusion from it. And this this has a personal element, but for both you and Susan, I, I, I'm guessing because she was employed there while you were getting care. Am I correct in that? We yes. did not actually see her. I will, yeah. I want to make sure to say that, but... Yeah. I've worked with her in other levels, but um, she was employed there while we had care. Now, I want to point out here that we did reach out to Jamie Reed through her attorney, Ernie Trakis, and we received a response uh, from uh, Jamie Reed and her attorney. Jamie Reed stated in her response that she never stated that all patients or parents have current complaints about the care they received. And she also said that she doesn't expect young patients and teens to understand the complexity of the care model. And she also said that it is a serious ethical problem when any group of patients is provided treatment that does not meet the high standards expected for pediatric care and when patients experience serious medical harm. She essentially stands by her case. Um, Susan, hearing, hearing that, I saw you make an expression when she said that she doesn't think that young patients really understand this care. That is completely untrue. I will say as the mother of a transgender child and uh, working with other transgender families, uh, Every one of these kids is a million steps ahead of the parents. They know what they need. They know what uh, will make them whole. And parents are behind the behind the eight ball listening to their kids. Joey, what, what did you hear in that in that statement? Again, that, that Jamie Reed is claiming that she's standing by her case that, you know, the, the kids like you were not given uh, high standards of pediatric care and that kids like you, you know, shouldn't be expected to really understand what's going on with them. Right. It's completely laughable. Uh, to add on to what my mom was saying, kids are people. Kids are human. Kids have brains. Kids are existing in society. Kids have opinions about their bodies. Kids have opinions about the way that they exist because they're humans. They operate in the same society as us. And taking away their rights to self-expression is just completely ridiculous. That is a human being. The other thing I'll say is particularly for trans teens, teens are the people who most know about themselves, I think. Now, Sarah, I wanted to, to ask you, it's not just you know, folks like Joey and Susan who have 
said that the accounts that Jamie Reed has provided don't match with their experience at these clinics. Um, there were two large investigations that came out, one from the Post-Dispatch, one from the Missouri Independent. They interviewed you know, dozens of parents. The Post-Dispatch, I think, said more than 30. And a lot of them had similar accounts saying of how much time they had to take, you know, the, uh, the, the description of going to an endocrinologist appointment and them saying, come back when you're going through puberty or come back when you've told uh, your, the rest of your family and have gone through social transition, that seems fairly common. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you found from talking with parents or, or these other reports that are shedding a light on kind of how these parents experience that clinic? Is there a, a divide in the version that Jamie Reed presents and what a lot of these parents and kids who have come out afterward are now describing? Yes, I think there is a disconnect. The patients that I talk to have said that they don't recognize their experience in that account. Um, you know, just like we've heard Joey say, um, it took a lot of time and uh, kids felt confident and teens felt confident that this was something that they knew about themselves and this was treatment that they were able to fully consent to. And also that it's just like a pretty long process getting everything that you need in order to get this kind of treatment in order to, for example, get hormones. You need um, referrals uh, from from a therapist. You need insurance that will cover it. You need to make an appointment with this clinic. And so um, there's just a lot of not only medical, but sort of bureaucratic barriers that take a long time in order for this to get through. And so um, the people I talked to said, like, the fact that this was characterized as something that was rushed through didn't really match their experience at all. So the consequences of Jamie Reed's report are really playing out in various ways across the state. Um, And Sarah, you mentioned that the Missouri uh, Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, has launched uh, a number of of investigations. Jamie Reed actually supplied uh, her claims and affidavit to the Office of the Attorney General before it was published. Uh, She's been open about this, that she had really wanted to start an investigation and and, and an attempt to affect how these clinics have run. Now, Bailey has called gender-affirming care an inhuman science experiment that, quote, mutilates children for the sake of a woke leftist agenda. And he's the one who's now running these investigations. Um, Do we have any sense of where these investigations could go, what the status of them are? I know Washington University is also involved in this. Are we waiting for someone to tell us what's going on? Attorney General Andrew Bailey has put out a public call um, looking for uh, first-person accounts of people who have had um, experiences at this clinic. And and so these investigations are ongoing. Um, Washington University also has said that they're looking into these allegations themselves. I don't know if they would call it an investigation. I, I They probably would say it's sort of more of an internal review of, of procedures. Um, And so we'll see what happens and if that actually affects care. I think one of the things that is more likely to affect care in the short term is probably legislation that's going through Jefferson City right now that you mentioned, um, and also potentially um, these uh, regulations from Andrew Bailey um, that he has said he wants to put into place that would at least temporarily limit uh, gender-affirming care for people under 18. Susan, you serve as the board president of a nonprofit organization called Transparent, uh, in which you support the parents of transgender and gender-independent kids of all ages. You've been in touch with a lot of parents um, who've been going through a lot of these similar 
processes. What are you hearing from them about reacting to Jamie Reed? Are, are these also people who who knew her, uh, who who knew her through the clinic? Yes, there are also people who knew her, and and there's just some very disturbing kind of dichotomies of. Uh, information where Jamie was the person that handed each one of us a packet of information when our child was first seen there that listed all of the drawbacks of the medications that she is claiming nobody knows about. Hmm. And I guess lastly, in our our last few minutes, um, Susan, it seems like a lot of this discussion also raises a question of of your own future in this state, you know, and, and for families like this. What kind of conversations are you having about whether you should stay in Missouri? I've already had two close friends uh, move out or are moving out of the state. Um, While we don't have uh, as much of an issue with it as our child is out of state and he's of the age of uh, majority, my husband and I have still talked about moving. Um, It's disturbing on so many levels. Uh, We have the ability to do that. That's the thing. Um, there are so many families that don't have the uh, financial ability to just up and move their whole family, um, and there will be there will be kids that die. Yeah. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that to shock anyone. I'm saying that just to be open and honest. This will kill kids. Joey, uh, you are studying in college out of state, and and like. A lot of college students, you'll get a choice of whether you want to come back to Missouri or not. How, how are you approaching that question right now? Absolutely not. No, I decided to go out of state because I was from Missouri. I never saw a future there even four years ago. As my mom was saying, we've been doing this for four years. And even before then, Missouri has never been, in my lifetime, a very uh, progressive or accepting state. I would say something that I find really shocking is when I do tell people where I'm from, my first reaction is, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> hey, I'm from Missouri. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I mean, that unfortunately is kind of an appropriate reaction, even without knowing that I'm trans. That is the mm, national perception of of Missouri at the moment. Mm-hmm. Joey, Susan, we've talked about a lot of serious aspects to this and then things that you can't control and lawmakers who are passing laws that, that could affect your lives, um, worrying about your kids, telling your parents and friends, but it, it it just strikes me that when we talk to these three young trans boys that we had in our studio and we asked them about their journeys, a lot of what they really wanted us to know was that like they're happier now who in the places they are and in their identities, that they have fun playing sports with their friends, they're being kids, they're living life. They said it's it, in so many ways being trans is not really a big deal to them. But I also wanted to ask you both to kind of talk about this other side of this and whether it's the ways that being trans is not such a big deal or that there's a joy and not just worry. Um, Joey, maybe tell, tell us a bit about, about that side of, of being trans. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked about this because this is my kind of new thing that I, I've been recently talking about because I think the discussion of trans joy is notably absent in these kinds of conversations. And I'm also kind of a, a comics journalist. I have a kind of I do comics and I have some online followers. So I just recently pu- published a little comic about trans joy on trans day of visibility. And it has, I mean, completely changed my life, changed my perception of myself, changed my self-confidence. I'm so much more confident in myself. I love my body. I love myself. I love my life. I love my relationships with other people. I, I mean, there's so much less that I have to worry about. I have so much less anxiety on a day-to-day basis. There is 
nothing that I would change about being trans. It has brought me so much joy and love um, and just what a wonderful community I'm, I'm part of. I think everyone has a different relationship with transness, but no one would do this if it didn't make them enormously happy and improve our lives so much. Um, I mean, the joy is everywhere. You will see it in any trans person. I am very, very grateful to be who I am and be where I am. Susan, as, as a parent, do you, do you get to see that joy? Do you hear it now hearing Joey? Yes, and I will say for the record, I actually have two absolutely amazing kids. Um, and I just love the fact that Joey can be who he was always meant to be. I'm not standing in his way, um, and he is absolutely blossoming and uh, love to see it. He is cool. <laughs> Susan and Joey, thank you so much for being with us here today. And Sarah Fenton, thank you also for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was St. Louis on the Air producer Danny Wisentowski and St. Louis Public Radio reporter Sarah Fenton in conversation with parent Susan Halla and her son Joey. Susan Halla also serves as the board president of the nonprofit Transparent, which organizes support groups for parents and families of trans kids. For more coverage on gender-affirming care, you can read Sarah Fenton's latest reporting at stlonair.show. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. With audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.